Welcome to Leading Lights. You're about to hear a message from Lighthouse Church. Hello again. I'm talking about the book of Acts. It's a wonderful, exciting, life-giving book. It's not just dry history from long ago. It's something that we can and should be living today. And we're up to Acts chapter 17. We're making great progress. And today, the word progress is what I'm talking about because Paul the Apostle made two big mistakes and he learned from them and he didn't let them crush him. He didn't get disheartened. He didn't give up. He learned and he moved on. And it's so encouraging to me that even the great Apostle Paul, after many years of ministry, planting so many churches, still was learning, still was making progress. And so I want to encourage you, my dear friend, you may think that you have disqualified yourself you may think that you are not qualified to do ministry. You may have made a mistake and you may be beating yourself up or others may be beating you up. And I want to show you today that God uses the weak and the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. So progress. Paul made mistakes and he learned from them and he didn't let them crush him and defeat him. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 14, it said, then immediately the brethren sent Paul away. This is from Berea. He's been in Philippi, gone down to Thessalonica, then in Berea, and there is persecution. And so the brethren send Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So for the first time in his whole missionary career, Paul is without a helper. He's got some people guiding him to the next place, but he doesn't have Silas. He doesn't have Timothy. He's left Luke in Philippi, and so he's alone. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. That's quite a long journey. Uh, they took him all the way down to Athens. You know, the great center of Greek wisdom and learning. Uh, it's, it's a major city. We would have expected Athens to be one of the big places in Paul's ministry. Um, he mentions Corinth a lot. Ephesus is his main pinnacle of ministry. We're going to see that Two churches later, Ephesus is his final pride and joy and the best result of his ministry. We would have expected Athens to be up there with those greats, but there is no mention of any church because Athens was not a great place for Paul. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So now Paul is all alone. For the first time in his ministry, he is absolutely alone in a new city. And this is the first mistake he made. He does his ministry and tries to do it in Athens. It doesn't work. He moves on to Corinth. And in Acts chapter 18, we read, After these things, Paul departed from Athens, went to Corinth. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. We see this in-between period. At the end of verse 15 of Acts 17, it says Paul is left alone. Silas and Timothy are still in Macedonia. At the beginning of Acts 18, 
uh, in verse 5, it says, When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit. Can you see that the, the power of the Spirit, the leading of the Spirit, the compulsion of the Spirit to do God's work is linked to the people we are teamed up with? And Paul had a period of ministry where he was alone. The New American Standard translates Acts 18 verse 5 as this. It says, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And so we see that it wasn't just a compelling by the Spirit. There was also a, a practical issue in that Silas and Timothy brought money and maybe they worked a bit. Paul had been working as a tent maker with Priscilla and Aquila. But in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived, Paul devotes himself completely to preaching and teaching. He's no longer working as a tent maker and the Holy Spirit is moving in him again. And he must have breathed a sigh of relief. Ah, I've got my team with me again. Friend, who are your team? Who are your team? This is the first mistake that Paul made and he learned from. Later on, we see him building teams around himself. He talks about his fellow workers. He builds teams. He writes to his teams. He works with his teams. He, they do different parts of the ministry together and in a delegated way. And the team is so important to Paul. And it made him able to do God's work. They released him time-wise. They gave him guidance and helped him, but also they encouraged him so that the Holy Spirit was working in him again. Later on, we're going to see that when Paul arrived in Corinth, so he's in Berea, he leaves Silas and Timothy, he goes to Athens, then he goes to Corinth. And later we're going to see that he describes how he arrived in Corinth just so weak and broken. He was so upset and feeling so demoralized in himself when he arrived in Corinth. And yet God worked through him. And then when Silas and Timothy came, things really started to ramp up and take off. But the first lesson is, who are your team? Who are you with? Find somebody you're with. Find somebody who is of like mind, a man of peace, somebody who you can link yourself with. And we at Leading Lights would love to help you. Even though it's from a distance, we would love to pray with you because there's no distance in prayer. And we would love to help you in whatever way we can. But let's now look at Athens. Verse 16, now when now while Paul waited for them at Athens, so Paul thought they were going to come to him at Athens, but actually they never came to Athens because Paul left Athens prematurely when things didn't work out. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Now, this was Paul's normal way of doing ministry. He would go to the synagogue. He would reason with the Jews and Gentiles who wanted to know about God. But verse 18 is where things changed, and he made a mistake. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. Now, who are these people? These people are the people who are the wisdom source in the ancient world. They know all the theories and the latest ideas. In fact, it goes on to say, 
Um, they said, what does this babbler want to, want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. They took him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. He was in a place of philosophical pride. They just took so much pride in how much they knew, how they could argue a different idea. And they got to the place where they were more concerned with their own cleverness and being able to argue different points. They were more concerned with that than with finding the truth. And that is a dangerous place for us to be. Because when a person doesn't want to know the truth, when they just want to win an argument or they want to throw a new curveball at you that might throw you off track, then you really are not going to win. You've got two options. Either you're going to lose an argument and not win over a, a friend for Christ, or you may win the argument, but you still haven't won a friend for Christ because they are not interested in finding Christ or the truth. They just want to win an argument or be seen to know more or to have the latest theory or to be very intellectually impressive. So Paul goes to this place, the Areopagus. It was a, a place where people gave speeches and everybody listened to the speech, not to change their lives, not to learn what is really true, not because they needed help, but because they wanted to judge it. It's al almost like going to a wine tasting where you taste a whole lot of different wines to judge which is the best. You don't really want the wine. You're not thirsty. You spit it out after every mouthful. That's what these people were like. They weren't going to receive nourishment from the truth of God's word or any truth. They just wanted to judge the arguments and to be seen to be clever and important. I wonder if you've ever been in a church or, a, or an environment like that, where people say they're there to worship Jesus, but the person speaking is just trying to sound as impressive as they can. And the people listening do not want to change. They just want to judge. They want to go and have roast preacher after the service where they can judge. This was right. That was wrong. But they have no intention of changing. That is a dangerous place for us to be. And Paul speaks to them in verse 22. Stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through... And considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. And Paul goes on to give a speech that is true and it is godly wisdom and it is right. But the audience was wrong and they weren't interested in listening. And he didn't even manage to get to the place where he described the crucifixion of Christ. He mentioned in passing that Jesus rose from the dead and that there was going to be a judgment day, but they shut him down. Um, it says in verse 31, he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. 
When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. And then it says a couple of people were converted. However, some joined him and believed Dionysius and, and the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Paul went to Corinth with a failure in his heart. Now, just from reading Acts, you may not realize that. But let me read you the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Because Corinth is where he went after Athens and he writes to the Corinthians just a little while later. And he describes what he felt when he arrived there and, and what happened, what was going on with him. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, he says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Just listen to how many times he mentions foolishness as opposed to human wisdom. Verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? As he's saying that, he's thinking of the Areopagites and their Stoic philosophy and their Epicurean philosophy and their mindset. He says, where is the wise and the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Verse 22, Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the, to the Greeks' foolishness. He says, I've learned from my mistake in Athens not to try and be clever. I'm just going to preach Christ and Christ crucified. Verse 24, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are mighty. And then he describes how he felt when he arrived. Chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. He's come fresh from this court in Athens where everybody is an intellectual pretender trying to show how great they are. They have no intention of finding the truth. They don't want God. They don't need God. They just want to show how clever they are. They want to dissect arguments. And he says... When I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech. He felt such pressure to speak excellently when he was with them. He even quoted some of their own poets. Um, he, he says, in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. He really was trying to impress them. He was trying to be one of them. He was trying to say, let me use your, your approach to convince you. And he realized when he came to Corinth, that's not going to work. You have to preach Christ and Christ crucified. I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Wow, that is amazing. Paul was a very clever man. He had studied under Gamaliel. He'd studied as a rabbi. He knew 
so much. He even knew the Greek poets. He could quote them. He was extremely intelligent. But he says, when I came to Corinth, I decided it's not going to be my strength. It's not going to be my ability to speak eloquently. It's not going to be human methods to impress you. Friend, are you trying to do something for Christ? Can I please encourage you not to try and copy the world because you will never be as good as the world in their methods, but we have something the world doesn't have. It is the power of God, Christ and Him crucified. It's foolishness, Paul says. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. If you say to someone, God wants you to get to heaven, you could not get to heaven because your sins were too great. God became a man and died for you. He died and took the penalty so that you could be forgiven. And then he rose again so that you could have eternal life. To an intellectual person, they say that's too simple. That's too silly. That's not wise enough. That's not eloquent enough. They're trying to find something that'll tickle their ears and make them feel superior. They say, I want, I want a truth that makes me seem like I know more than everyone else. I want to impress people with my cleverness and the complexity of my arguments. And we say it's a simple gospel. Jesus died for you. Do you remember the man in John chapter 9 who was blind and Jesus made him see? And the religious leaders came and questioned him. Who is Jesus? What did he do? He says, all I know is I was blind and now I can see. And that's what we have. We have Christ and him crucified. It's foolishness. It's not complicated, but it seems too foolish for people who are full of pride. But those who are willing to accept and who want forgiveness, they will accept it. Paul goes on to say, I determined to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Paul, the great apostle, who stood in the Areopagus with the greatest philosophers of the known world and has held his own in debate, but has not managed to convert them. He comes to Corinth in weakness, in fear, and in trembling. His voice is quavering while he's speaking. He's no longer eloquent. He's no longer quoting poems and very amazing literature. He is just saying, Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. He was God and he became a man and he lived and he died for you so that you could be forgiven. And he painted a picture of Christ being crucified for them. To the Galatians, he did the same. In Galatians 3, he says, before your very eyes, Christ was portrayed as crucified. Why are you now trying to add good works to what Jesus did? Look at what I told you Jesus did on the cross for you. That's enough. That pays for your sins. It does away with human pride. When we see how great Jesus' crucifixion was for us, human pride goes out the window. My friend, can I challenge you? Are you relying on human wisdom? Are you trying to use the world's methods to get a godly goal? Maybe it's trying to win people for Christ. Maybe it's trying to grow your small group. Maybe it's trying to promote your ministry around the world. Whatever it is, we've got to rely on God's wisdom and not human wisdom. We can do things well. We can have nice pictures and, and clever advertising. We can do things well, but at the end of the day, we're relying on the power of God. We don't just become shabby, but we're relying on God. Paul says, I was in weakness with much trembling. Verse 4, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit 
and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And he goes on to say that we do have a wisdom, but it's a godly wisdom and that fleshly people cannot understand it. The wisdom of the Spirit cannot be understood by those who don't want the Holy Spirit. I'm just so challenged by this. You know, Paul made progress. He made some mistakes. He had his Athens moment, his Mars Hill moment. The Areopagus was also called Mars Hill. He had his Mars Hill moment where he tried to be too clever. He tried to copy the world. He tried to do what people around him expected, and it didn't work out. But he learned. He came with weakness and trembling. He preached to them Christ and Christ crucified. He prayed for the power of the Holy Spirit. And earlier on, he says that all manner of signs and wonders and the gifts of the Spirit were done among them. They saw great things happening. But he also built a community. When Silas and Timothy came, he then stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, the longest time he had ever stayed in one place. He um, met in a home. He withdrew from the synagogue and they started meeting in a home. And then small groups would have sprung up all around. And he built a community over a year and a half. And he learned from what had happened in Athens. The next city he went to was Ephesus. And that was the pinnacle of his ministry. And we're going to see just amazing lessons that he'd learned from there. My first question to you, my dear friend, is are you still learning as a Christian? Are you willing to learn? Are you saying, God, I need to learn new things. I need to maybe change from, from the way I used to do things. I, I need to make progress. I need to admit when I've made mistakes. Paul admitted. He said, I really need help. I, he came in weakness and trembling. You can imagine him going to Corinth and just even though he was the great apostle, just being humble, just being honest with them, saying, I made a blunder. I, I should have not tried to be wise like the, like the philosophers. Um, and let me tell you about Christ. He was humble. Friend, are you humble? That's the second question. Are you willing to be real with people? Later on in Corinthians, Paul says, we don't use tricky or devious means. We just present the word of God plainly. We don't try and trick people, deceive them, manipulate them, um, get them in through some other method. We just tell them about Christ and Christ crucified. Can I just mention a little illustration that we've used in our church before? It's, it's got numbers one, two, three, four, five. Number one represents a person who is far from Christ who doesn't know Jesus, doesn't want to know Jesus. They are uninterested in the gospel. Number two represents someone who is coming towards maybe wanting to know about Jesus. Number three represents when a person gets saved. They change from darkness to light. Their, their spirit is born again. They are made brand new. Number four is when they are becoming discipled, becoming more and more like Jesus. And number five is when they now start making other disciples and reaching out to others. So we go from uninterested to a fully committed disciple maker. And number three is in the middle. And our job as the church is to do that whole, that whole job from number one to number five. We should be reaching out in some ways to those who are uninterested. To those who are at number two, who are vaguely interested, we should be reaching. Conversion, we should be giving people a chance to get saved. Disciple making and then sending out disciple makers. That is our task. 
But there's a different approach. Before a person is saved, when they're at number one, uninterested, or number two, vaguely interested, they still don't care about the Bible, about God enough to, to just obey the Bible. If you go to them and you say, the Bible says, a person who is uninterested or vaguely interested will say, well, so what? There's other books. There's other books. Look at all these, these poets who've written all these different words. Why is the Bible any better from any other? And for those people, we start with life lessons. For instance, poetry or, or books that they know or whatever, and we lead them back and bring them to the Bible. We start from life and we tell them about the Bible. And in that way, we're bringing them to number three when they get saved. When a person does get saved, from number three onwards, they have given their hearts to Jesus. They believe God's word. And so we can start with the Bible and then apply it to their lives. And Paul was trying to start from life and apply it to the Bible when he did his speech in Athens. It's a great speech. It really is. And there is a place for people to do that kind of evangelism where they are just getting people ready to get saved. They're not getting people saved. They're getting people ready. They're getting people towards salvation. And we need that. But Paul said his calling and the church's calling is when people are at nearly number three to get them saved. We need people who will bring them closer. And we start from life. We say to them, let me tell you about your marriage. Let me help you with um, principles for business. Let me help you with your depression. Let me help you with the pain you're feeling. Let's pray for healing. We can start with life and bring them towards the Bible. But we must then have a place where they get the gospel, the message of Christ crucified. And then from then on, we talk Bible and we apply it to life. If we only ever talk life and try and apply it to Bible, we will never have a fully mature church. If we only ever talk Bible and, and apply it to life without trying to reach out to the lost, we will not be fulfilling the Great Commission. When we put the two together, we will have success. Lord, I pray for my brother or sister that you would help us and me, them and me, to make progress, to be moving forward, to be putting the past behind and to learn the lessons, to not rely on human methods or wisdom and to get people around us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening. Please visit leadinglightsnetwork.com for more resources and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please consider supporting this ministry by making a donation on the giving page at leadinglightsnetwork.com or lighthousejersey.com.